thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you everyone today who made us so welcome. And um, I have to say, uh, as a graduate of, of uh, another one of these kinds of schools, that it says a lot about Christendom College that you finally attained to having your keynote address given by a Magdalen College student. <laughs> so that was a joke. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, about 20 years ago, that would have gotten a huge laugh, but I think that's a progress that, uh, that we, we don't, we've gotten past that. Um, anyway, I, um, I'm here uh, kind of delighted to be here, actually pretty nervous. You know, I speak to USC, uh, University of Southern California, quite a, a lot, a couple times a year, and, you know, I, I, it's kind of like a minnow in the shark pool. But I'm less nervous there than I am here, and I think it's because I'm one of you. I went to a four-year Catholic great books, um, school where we wore skirts and the guys wore sport coats and, and it's, um, you know, what is it? It says in the scripture, a prophet is not without acceptance except in their native place. So I fully expect vegetables to come up here being thrown, uh, you know, at some point uh, in the evening. But no, it's, it's really um, an honor to be here. And I guess, um, I guess what we're going to do, you know, I've changed the, the name of my talk 14 times in the last two days because I wasn't sure exactly what to say, and I'm sure we're not going to get to the end um, of everything that I would love to say. There's many things, so we will have questions at the end for anything you want to talk about. But um, I want to I start with, you know, I spoke to the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars a few years ago, and my topic was towards a Catholic cinema. And I, again, I'm not a scholar, uh, so I was very nervous about that talk, and I had really done my homework before going. And I remember at the end of my presentation, one of the scholars raised his hand and said, I quibble with the whole notion that cinema could ever be considered an art form. Because after all, it's populist, isn't it? To which I said, with all due respect, professor, some things are popular because they're great, like soap or the wheel. Mm -hmm. However, I wanted to just get that one out of the way fast, in case any of you are laboring under this and are going to watch me all night wondering whether cinema is an art form. And also, um, I want to start with a beautiful clip of cinema that came from a movie from two years ago. And uh, the reason I'm, uh, first of all, I think there's nothing as bonding as the shared experience of beauty. Uh, second of all, I think that um, anybody who thinks this stuff is easy should just try this. Just try. Hmm? This is the one of the opening sequences from the movie by Pixar called Up. And yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm home. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to, to watch this together and um, watch this story, little story, uh, beginning, middle, end, uh, the story of a marriage. Okay, please. It's practically perfect in every way as a, as a piece of art, story, and entertainment. I showed this clip at USC. And they all knew it, of course. Everyone there, you know, worships Pixar. Uh, and I asked one of the students, why do you like this? And, you know, no one there, I mean, there's some Christians there, whatever, they're, they're everywhere. But, uh, but you know, <laughs> see, secret ones for fear of the pagans, right? And, uh, but, uh, you know, a girl in the front row, I said, why do you like this? And she said, I would do anything in my life if I could somehow be in the middle of a relationship like that. Now, this movie was not made by Catholics. It was not made by Christians for Christians. I don't know anything made by Catholics or Christians today in cinema that comes close to what this achieves, which is kind of what I'm talking about here tonight and the problem and why I'm hoping my agenda here tonight uh, is to coax some of you into beginning to pray that maybe, maybe with the education you've been given, God might be calling you into the culture to be a storyteller to your generation 
and through the miracle of cinema to generations many yet to come. People will be watching this in, in, if we're still here on this planet in 200 years. So uh, I, I would hope that some of you uh, would do this. But let's talk about why. I mean, the alternate topic, the title of my talk tonight is, Why Do Pagans Make the Best Christian Films? <laughs> and the corollary, Why Do Christians Make the Worst Films? Um, so, um, I mean, I, I'm somebody who gets a look at anything that pretty much has a spiritual angle to it. And, and I saw two Christian films in the last two weeks, one coming from a group of Catholics, the other one coming from some evangelicals. And, uh, you know, the, the operative word is embarrassing. <laughs> but I was challenged by a Catholic critic to, you know, why can't you support the work of other Catholics. We shouldn't get down on each other. And, you know, here it comes. There's the dilemma, something for us to think about. I told her, go to my blog and read how I ripped the Julia Roberts soft focus orgy, eat, pray, love. There's no way I can do that with integrity and then give a pass to people who happen to share my faith as filmmakers because they mean well. You know, how do I know? Maybe Julia Roberts' team meant well, too. Um, but anyway, okay, so let's see where we're headed tonight. Where do I point this? Here. Yeah, see, I have a degree in cinema, but I can't run a remote. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me what I should press, please? Oh, it has to be on. <laughs> it's one of those weird ones. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, am I pressing the right thing? Green. Got it, thank you. Okay, here's what I'm not gonna talk about in the remaining half hour that I have. Um, what is exactly my end time? Oh no, that's no good. I'm Sicilian. I can talk for... I can talk for two hours, it would be clearing my throat, you know? Okay, here's what I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about Act One. This is the program that I helped to found back in 1999 with 30 other professional writers in Hollywood. We brought with us Vicki Peterson. Vicki, stand and wave. There you go. She's the director of Act One, and she can answer all your questions afterwards. It's basically a program to train to be a bridge for people of faith, believers, who are writers or future executives or producers into the entertainment industry, okay? It's something that I wish that we had had when I got to Hollywood, so now we have it, and so you have no excuse um, not to throw your hat in the ring uh, because there's a huge community waiting for you, but I'm not gonna talk about that. Also not gonna talk about the movie Mary Mother of Christ, which is an MGM release that will be coming out next summer, God willing. We were supposed to shoot in we're supposed to shoot in Jordan, and so far it's the only Mideast country that has not yet exploded, and uh, they keep moving us around. So hopefully it'll be shot uh, in a month in Jordan. It stars Al Pacino, Julie Armand, Camilla Bell, Jonathan Rice Myers, Jessica Lange. It's a pretty cool uh, film, and the version I turned over, I was very proud of some things in it. Uh, one never knows what's going to make it in the end, but uh, anyway, so that's something to keep in your prayers, and I'm also not going to talk about that. I'm also not going to talk about how to break into screenwriting, directing, producing, whatever it is. Um, not really going to talk about that tonight. Um, I'm not going to talk about what happened to Mel Gibson, <laughs> uh, nor how you can get him to be a featured speaker here. Um, but all of these things... <laughs> All of these things are fair game in the question period if you want me to uh, talk about any of them, okay? All right, here we go. This is where we're headed in the time we have remaining and we're off and running. The first thing I wanna say is what do I know? So I wanna do a little word of introduction besides the fact that I went to a great books uh, Catholic college, a couple of the words about myself uh, for you. Now you heard my whole bio, um, or most of it anyway, but, um, but still um, I, I have an agenda. Uh, number two, I wanna talk about um, 21st century Christianity and Plato's cave. And I'm so thrilled to be able to do that in an audience that knows what Plato's cave is. Yeah. 
When I first mentioned it at the Los Angeles Film Study Center, I had 50 eyes blink back at me and ask me if it was an alternative rock band. And I said, you know, it really should be. But anyway, um, the next question is, uh, where are Christians in the arts today? Why do we Christians make bad art? Why do we make bad movies? And how do we earn a voice in the culture? And actually, I'm not sure my slides even go through with all that outline, but it's a really great outline for a talk that someone might give someday. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how we go. Okay. Um, why you might trust me about movies. Excuse me, why you might trust me about movies. And that is because I was raised in Newport, Rhode Island in a very devout Catholic family. We said the rosary every night as a family. You know, when I went to Magdalene, they give us a, an introduction to theology test, and I was just whipping through it like this is so easy till I got to the question, how many holy days of obligation are there? And I started to count, and I wrote 24. <laughs> And when they said five, my response as a 17-year-old was, yeah, right. I was like, come on, St. Peter's chair, please. And I realized that my mother had been perpetuating a grand hoax on all of us. That's how Catholic we were. Um, had lots and lots of catechesis. You also might want to trust me about movies because I had a classical liberal arts studies education at Magdalene before it got really weird and something I don't put on my resume. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You might trust me about movies because I spent nine and a half years as a daughter of St. Paul. That's none. I was in the religious community. I left as a junior professed sister right before final vows. You know, honestly, I don't even talk about this much in Hollywood because it's such a cliche. You know. Um, actually, the first time I ever did mention it at a big Hollywood event for project development people, it's all people that work in developing uh, with producers. And I was standing next to this blonde, you know, leggy thing. And, and, um, and she was kind of the way how people do this at parties in Hollywood. So tell me where you work. What are you doing? Who are you working with? You know, and, and they're not looking at you. They're looking and to see who's in the room. And so I was getting really annoyed. So I said, well, actually, I was a nun for nine and a half years. I just, I just pulled into town two years ago. And she said, really? And did that work for you? And I said, clearly not. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I had a lot of theology and philosophy in the convent on top of what I had at Magdalene, lots of theology and philosophy. Uh, and then I got an MA in TV and film from Northwestern, which was the number four program at the time. And then I had additional studies, as they said. So you might trust me about movies because of all of that. But you should trust me about movies because, and I'm not going to go through all of this, but if you add them all up as a project development, a professional screenwriter, the founder of Act One, an educator who trains people, a judge for all these things, um, I've probably read 2,000 scripts. And I've probably seen in short films, because I'm a, a judge of the student contest, probably 1,000 student short films. And yet I find when I say to Catholics, brace yourselves, you're about to stop liking me. Bello really isn't that good a movie. People say, you know nothing. Ooh. Okay. I can't resist. I'm Sicilian. I had to get the drama out there. But anyway, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. I'm not saying you can't like Bella. I like pork rinds. <laughs> and I'm not saying the intentions behind Bella weren't good and there weren't some laudable things and everything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just wondering if we can have a standard of assessment that puts, if you put Bella next to up, what do you get? Hmm. Okay. We don't want to do that though, do we? All right. So here we have the analogy of the cave. Right? And here are the prisoners staring at the shadows on the wall. And here are the people in front of the fire casting the shadows on the wall. And my question to you is, where are Christians in this scenario today? Which ones are we? Which ones? The prisoners. So I have votes for prisoners. I have nobody saying, is anybody going to say we're casting the shadows on the wall? You've got two people. Okay. 
Um, okay. Two people in the room. So you, you have to be wrong. <laughs> but you know what? You got courage. And that's okay. That's a mark of insanity. So, um, no, I'm only kidding. Um, no, all right. So basically, most of you are unwilling to go out there and say that Catholics, Christians today, are the people who are setting the, um, the storytelling agenda for the world. Hmm? Now, some of you are thinking they're actually out in the light, outside the cave. That's where the Christians are. <laughs> We're all done with this. Who wants to say that one? A couple? Okay, there's somebody back there who's in the light. Everyone please follow him because he has all the answers. All right. Um, I anticipated that people out there are secretly thinking they're actually in the light. And you know what the response of the people who are in the light is from the Republic? Wouldn't he, that's the person in the light, remember his former home, what passed for wisdom there and his fellow prisoners, and consider them pitiable? So in other words, if you were indeed in the light, having escaped the cave, then you would be doing something to enlighten those poor people you left back in the cave. That's the proof. Um, my suspicion is that we are the prisoners, but whereas the Orthodox Catholics, Orthodox Christians, are sitting there in the prison chairs with our eyes squeezed shut and our hands in our ears saying, la, 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 la. It's like Jonah sitting on the hill over Nineveh, under his gourd, waiting for God to do away with all the bad people. Um, I think that, um, that, that this is an interesting question. But I think the main point of me showing it to you is, I don't, I, the question is, should we be casting the shadows on the wall? Um, okay, um, so note to disciples in case you're in doubt about that. This is my PDA from Jesus. <laughs> the mandate. Go into the whole world and tell all men the good news. And I will be with you always. You know, when I came here this morning, I only had the first part. But I had so many students tell me they would be afraid to go to Hollywood that I added the second part. Um, but that's the mandate, to go into the whole world, not to go into the choir loft, not to go into the subculture, not to go where it's safe. But as St. Teresa of Avila said, it all comes down to this, bring God where he's not. And where is he more not? than in the world of art and media. You know, Los Angeles is the city of the angels. Don't you love that? The city of the angels. And the angels were told, oh, this is our city. Cool. So they made it the center of global communication media because that's what angels do. They message. <laughs> now, unfortunately, the church at some point decided that it didn't want cultural influence for whatever reason. And so we abandoned it to the other angels who were only too happy to take the town. But the truth is that it's still the city of the angels. Uh, Hollywood is not Sodom and Gomorrah. I can tell you as somebody who lives there, it's Nineveh. It just needs somebody to come through barefoot and wearing sackcloth and say, repent, the day of the Lord is at hand. It's going to take a little courage, but okay. Now, um, see, once the church was the patron of the arts, and I don't need to beat this one with a stick. I hope you guys are, on, are, are with me on this. This is Oviedo, my favorite church facade, and, you know, beautiful things. So the question I would ask you is, when the church was the patron of the arts, was that a good thing or a bad thing, you think? 
you only get one guess. <laughs> you know, actually, when I first used this expression, patron of the arts, with my students in um, the Los Angeles Film Studies Center, who are Christian, mostly not Catholic, they're, they're evangelicals, one of the girls in the front row can raise her hand. She goes, who is this patron of the arts person? And I said, hmm, teachable moment. Who do you think the patron of the arts is? And they thought about it for a second, and then some hands went up. The Bravo Channel? <laughs> Sundance? How pathetic is that? Um, OK, this is what we used to do. This is what we do today. I have to point out the, yeah. But um, you got, we got Marty Hoggins' Gather Us In, which is my personal choice for purgatory music. We got Thomas Kincaid, who last year there was a study that 98% of Christians' homes have a Thomas Kincaid image in them. There's precious moments there. And there's Jesus with the teens. And then this, whatever. Um, anyway, okay, so the question is, we were the patron of the arts once, what are we today? Here's John, blessed John Paul. This generation of the church will have to atone for its failure to use the media of social communication to spread the gospel of life. Think about that. You know, Capernaum is going to have to find a reason for kind of not getting Jesus. That's not going to be the question they ask us as a generation when we look at God. John Paul II said we're going to have to atone. And he goes on to say the reason we don't use the, God, the social communications media is fear, sloth, and hubris that we don't want to work with non-believers because we're better than them. I have to let you know, okay, we may have our moral act somewhat together, but if I wanted to produce a beautiful Catholic liturgy on Sunday at my parish, I would hire my friend Saul on Hollywood, the production designer. He's a Jew. And he'd come in and say, so what are we doing here? And I'd say, well, Saul, we want the whole group of people to feel united so they can pray, they can send up a prayer together. He goes, okay, great. What about some lighting here? What are we doing? It's all flat. How about some, uh, what, what are those flowers, dead up there? <laughs> Who's this kid in the white wrinkled thing with the high tops? <laughs> what is that? Go, go change. Can't you put something red on him or something like that? Okay, let's hear the music. Dun, 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 whoa! You know, call my friend Larry. He does all that old stuff. It's great. Okay, Father, let's hear what you got. <laughs> Yo! Hey, Father, beginning, middle, end, make your point. Get out! What we're talking about is, as an artist, Saul is in relationship with the beautiful. He doesn't know that the beautiful's other name is Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. But he's, as John Paul II said, anyone who is in the pursuit of beautiful, wholeness, harmony, and radiance, is in fact in relationship with Christ. And so he's able to produce a more beautiful liturgy than we will, and I'll tell you why we fail, because we've sacrificed the beautiful to other things. Okay, so my point, just to beat it with a stick, uh, the, the art made by Christians today is not only not beautiful, but tends to be among the ugliest art that mankind is producing. <laughs> Considering the music that is, and this is from, this is from Pope Benedict in Spirit of the Liturgy, Considering the music that is in use in most Catholic churches today, we have to conclude that the people of God are afflicted with the cult of the banal. That's the Pope, and I think that's stronger even than anything I've said here. 
Okay. Now, as Christians, we've got to say a word about the beautiful here, because I don't think, if I said to you, is Bella a beautiful movie, everybody that's Catholic would say yes, because they would be afraid to be stoned. But <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what we mean by beauty. As Christians, we want to think of beauty as this. And it is beautiful. Hmm? But I read the church saying, well, what about this? This is a frame from the movie Apocalypse Now. Huh? Um, as a work of composition, um, what do we think about this? What do we think about this? Is this beautiful? Is this ugly? What do we think about this? This is from Seventh Seal, Mar Bergman. As a work of composition, does it suggest incompleteness? Does it suggest something missing, something extra? Does it work? Does it emote? So the thing is, the word beauty for us comes from the Greek word, excuse me for saying this at Christendom, I know you guys all know this and can do it much better than I can, but um, this was for USC students, so you know, bear with me, right? No, actually, yeah, I didn't do this talk at USC. They would have no idea what I'm talking about. So, um, okay, um, the question is, it comes from the Greek word kalen, which means to call. So the question for you is, what is this person here feeling right now. If you could put yourself in that person's place right now, what are they feeling? Somebody. Awe. Why are they feeling awe? <laughs> Don't quit your day job. <laughs> Why are they feeling awe? Because what they see is awesome. Okay. Um, all right, well, you know what? I, I, I think the, the idea here is that, that if it was me standing there, I would feel very, very small in, in kind of suddenly you have a vista that is so massive. And it's, it doesn't need me. It was there before me. I stumbled on it. And yet it's given to me in this moment almost like a gift. You feel something inside of you yearning straining forward for you know not what. One of my friends is an NPR uh, stringer, and she uh, interviewed me several years ago in Seattle, and we've stayed friends. And she's, um, she was an atheist. I think she's moved into agnostic, which I told her is the passionate commitment to being ambivalent. <laughs> but um, anyway, so she said to me when she, we were, she turned off the machine at one point, and she said, you know, I'm a hiker and I live in New Hampshire. And sometimes I go up into the New Hampshire White Mountains and I go out on a cliff and I look out into the valley and everything in me wants to believe that there's a God looking down at me. And then I say to myself, that's your fundamental human isolation, uh, trying to cope with the fact that you're headed for death. I was like, Shannon, we're the first generation, I mean, the last hundred years, whatever, a couple of us now, but who doubted their own, their own sense here. She has the voice of God speaking in her spirit, and her first impulse, or her first impulse is yes, and then quickly shut it down in doubt. I said to her, look, next time you feel that, before you let the, I don't want to look like a fool, doubt kick in, why don't you say, is that you, God? It's Shannon. That's S-H-A. <laughs> but, you know, this, uh, this feeling here of, um, uh, again, Pope Benedict says in, uh, I think it's called Beauty in the Face of Christ or something like that. It's an essay he wrote as, uh, uh, before he became pope. But he said that beauty solves the problem of the garden. What is the problem of the garden? You will be like gods, knowing for yourselves what's good and evil. You will be like gods. Pope Benedict says when you experience the beautiful, you are very aware that you're not God. It makes you feel small, but okay with it. 
You feel at the same moment glad. You feel gratitude. And it's like, oh, being a creature's pretty cool. This was a gift given to me. I don't want to be God. I like going around frolicking and experiencing this. <laughs> now, the problem that, as Pope Benedict says, he says, um, the problem is that we are less and less an agrarian society where people would experience God in moments like this. For me to experience something like this in LA, I'd have to get in the car and drive for two hours. I mean, I could go to a red carpet and watch Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, and you know, and that is quite awesome. They're very beautiful. Um, but the point is that, and the Pope makes this point, as people become less and less connected to, to the, the unmediated uh, creator, his, his stuff done in his own hand, they're going to need art to give them the sense of the beautiful because they're not going to be able to get it any other way. And he says the two ways in which we can confirm in people the truth of the church are the beauty of the lives of the saints and the beauty of the work that we create, the art that we create. Okay, can I have some water, please? All right, now here's, oh rats, it's too bad. This is um, a picture uh, based on the short story, a, Ma a Good Man is Hard to Find. Mm. Yeah, Flannery O'Connor is the patroness of Act One. And um, to tell you the truth, we've had 52 converts through Act One, and I am pretty sure it's a combination of that we ex expose our separated brethren to John Paul II's theology of the body as it relates to art and Flannery O'Connor. Um, and it's, the, two com the combination is pretty irresistible. So, um, but anyway, um, the, the Pope says the church needs the prophetic voice of the art. And so you have a story, The Good Man is Hard to Find, which uh, my students always experience as a slap in the face. And that's kind of just a prep for a displaced person. <laughs> or the river, right? Um, uh, and I have this line here, you can't read it. Too bad there wasn't somebody there to shoot her every day of her life. We want our art as believers that we put in the world to shoot people every day of their life. And the question is, what does that take? How do you create art that would shoot people every day of their life? Um, now, the traditional philosophical definition of beauty, as you know, is wholeness, harmony, and radiance. Pretty much all the smart guys agreed with this, um, and that equals beauty. Wholeness, harmony, and radiance. I just want to say a couple words about these um, as it relates to the movies. So, but anyway, but that means if wholeness and harmony and radiance are what beauty is, that eliminates cute, pretty, facile, puerile, and banal. So if it's easy, it's not beautiful. But if when you encounter it, something in your spirit yearns, strains forward, you feel deeply touched on your most human level, you've encountered the beautiful. Wholeness, harmony, and radiance, okay. Now, why don't we have more of this? This is my theory, okay. My first reason why we don't have more beauty in the church is what I call egalitarianism, and I'm not sure if I can come up with a better word for children's choir. Here. Okay. We've all suffered through these. Right? Aren't they cute? Um, I came out of Mass one Sunday and I said to Father, I was shaking, the music was so bad. And, and I said to the pastor, Father, what did we do to deserve music this bad? <laughs> and he said, you don't like it? You can go to the five o'clock, they have a different thing. And I said, it's not the style. It's bad music, badly done. So, in other words, you could have good music, well done, great music, well done, huh? Good music, well done. You could have good music, badly done. You could have bad music, well done. 
or bad music badly done. And, and that's kind of where most Catholic parishes in the country live. So the question is why, why? Um, uh, when I went and after suffering through this, oh, let me say two things. So then father said to me, Barbara, you know, if a mother's four-year-old child brings her a little drawing, she takes it and says, oh, that's so beautiful, honey. She doesn't say, this is crap. <laughs> so I said, Father, let me put you another case. Supposing I, a 44-year-old woman, brought my mother a drawing that looked like a four-year-old had drawn it. <laughs> what would my mother say? Um, what happened there was that I went to UCLA. He basically said we can't afford good music. So I went to UCLA and got, which is getting to my uh, consumerism problem, right? We've, we've moved from, but actually his real motive was the first one, egalitarianism. Because Doris and Stan, who were singing at the 10 o'clock mass, cannot sing and cannot play. But they sing and play every week. So I went to UCLA and I put a sign up, need three people to sing at the 10 o'clock mass, we'll pay $100 a week. I got three classically trained doctoral students, a, a singer, a pianist, and a violinist. And they said they would do it for $100 a week. Now I thought, this is not only cool, but none of them are Catholics, so I will sit with them every week and talk to them about our liturgy and go through our readings and ha 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 And then there was a woman in the church, an old woman who used to sit at the pew across from me, and she would sit at the mass wincing and cringing. And, and she dressed well, so I went up to her and I said, you look like you have money. I have a proposal. So she gave $5,000 that we could pay these three kids to come to mass. It's not over yet. So I went to Father and said, Father, oh, happy day. I have $5,000 and three doctoral candidate pagans just dying to become Catholics to sing at our mass. And father said, he listened to the whole thing and then he got a very pained look on his face and he said, Doris and Stan have been here for about 15 years. And I said, father, they can't sing. And he said, you know what, in a year when your money runs out, I'm going to need Doris and Stan again. And Barbara, I'm not going to hurt them. I'm not going to hurt them that way. I said, so you'll hurt a thousand of us. You'll flay our aesthetic sensibilities to save the, in, the, the in, disinformed Doris and Stan. And I think that we've really lost something in the church here because, you know, I've been to Rome many, many times. And when you go through St. Peter's, there's no wall in St. Peter's for the lovely people who had a heart for the Lord but couldn't paint. <laughs> the church used to be able to say, it's not good enough for what John Paul II calls this, the liturgy is the corporate act of beauty that we make together and present to God. It's not good enough. We can do better. All right, so egalitarianism is the, mis is the confused idea that the stuff we do with art in the church should be something that everybody can do. And that as long as we're trying together, it's good. And this is the thing that kicks in when people say, some Catholics made it. And we say, it's not good. My sister's an opera singer. She once did a study of the three biggest and most prominent Catholic catechisms. She did this for her, her graduate thesis at, uh, in her master's degree. The, most, the three most prominent catechism, uh, hymnals in use in the Catholic Church in America today. And she found that less than 25% of the composers had any musical training. 
I'm glad you groaned. That's awful. I mean, we're singing music that Barney would reject. But we're doing it because we don't want, because as, as people have said to me, um, we don't want to be elitist. Now, the second thing I have is politics. And for that one, I'm pointing here. Does anybody know what this is? You guys are from LA, huh? No? You've been there? All right. Anybody know what this lovely thing is? It's just Our Lady Queen of the Angels. What's wrong with you? This is part of the 210th cathedral that Archbishop Mahoney, God rest his memory, <laughs> said would stand for 500 years in LA. Personally, I'm counting on the first big one. But anyway, this image, when we first went through the cathedral, when it was first built, they had a tour guide, and she, she stands over the door, of the outside door. There's no image of Our Lady inside the main body of the church. Uh, but she stands outside over the door. And the guide explained to us that my students actually call this Manhands Mary. <laughs> because... If you notice, the guide said the idea behind this statue was that it would combine all different kinds of people. So there's man hands, masculine strong hands, and a more feminine um, shape. But it's also not, there's no figure there because we don't want to alienate kids by giving her bosoms. We put her hair out of the way because we don't want her to be too feminine looking. We want her to be androgynous because she represents all. It goes on. She went on to point out that the, the lips are kind of African. And the shape of the face looks like a mestizo face. And she went on to find pretty much every race on earth. And, and I think the costuming is for the people on the planet Zondor. But anyway, I raised my hand wearily when she finally took a breath, and I said, you know, it's kind of ugly. <laughs> to which she said, oh, the church is not about that anymore. The church is about making everyone feel welcome by including them in the statue. <laughs> now, it begs the question whether Asian people look at the Pieta and go, that's nice for the white folks. But the real truth of it is, God did not ever make a human being with man's hands and and a woman's head and an African lips and, and a mestizo thing. That's called a freak show. But they weren't going for wholeness, harmony, and radiance here. They were going for agenda. So they sacrificed the beauty because of the political point. Now, I don't mean politics in a left-right sense, because I see this on the right just as badly. I recently had to critique, there's, there's a whole movement now that people on the right should make movies and it's going on in Hollywood and it's happening, there's a lot of us that are meeting and there's money coming in. And so what you're seeing on the right is the impulse to make propaganda for the right. So there was a movie called American Carol made by some dear friends of mine and I told them this, but frankly it was a rip of Michael Moore. A rip without the slightest bit of sense that this is a human being who is still sadly for all of us but true loved by God. It's really inconvenient. <laughs> we don't get to do what they do. Propaganda is a distortion of the truth to get people to, to manipulate people. We don't get to do that. All we get to do is make beautiful things and hope the people's hearts will respond. So 
we have this case now of people on the right saying, you know, we're going to do something that's going to show them. I get this in, in pro-life movies. You know, there's always Christians trying to write pro-life movies. For the most part, pro-life movies don't work. The best pro-life movie I've ever seen was Juno, made by some pro-choice people. Thank you. That one should really get a big round of applause. Juno is a beautiful film and unintentionally pro-life. In fact, Diablo Cody, the pro-choice woman, was horrified when she found out people were saying pro-lifers were liking it. And she said, I didn't mean to make a pro-life movie. I just told the truth. <laughs> anyway, um, so this political thing, every time we decide that we're going to use art to, to jam something down people's throats or to bam them on the head, it's going to be bad. Because what we have to serve in art is the beautiful. First. Um, the third way we ruin art in the church is, I found many words for this, consumerism, transactionalism, cheap. <laughs> cheap. Uh, I can't tell you how many meetings I've had with people who say to me, we're going to make a movie that's beautiful. And they come to me, we want you to write it. And I'm like, you know, talk to my agent. And then my agent calls me up and says, Barbara, they, they weren't even going to give you a third of what the Writers Guild minimum is. And I said, well, how much were they offering? And he'll say, you know, a piece of chicken. <laughs> the honor of doing something for God. What I find with Christians in art very often is we, we, we boast and we, we talk like we want to play Major League Baseball. And then we fund like we're playing Pee Wee League. And then we stand back. Okay, there was another movie a few years ago. God love them. Sweet people. I shouldn't say the name of the movie because they really are. Catholics called me and they were going to make a movie about a Catholic saint. And they asked me to read the script. And my note was, this script is problematic in every way in which a screenplay can be problematic. I feel that I have not expressed myself clearly enough. So they said, I said, first of all, it's this. This is wrong with it and your story. And I said, you're, they're like, we're going to shoot in a month. I said, you're not ready to shoot. The script is nowhere near ready. The movie will be bad. The thing in Hollywood we say all the time is, if you have a great script, you might get a good movie. If you have a good script, you probably won't. It's that hard, and there's that much that happens between the blueprint and the final construction. Huh? So anyway, I said to them, the script is terrible. Also, you're not working with real talent. You're using you know, people that aren't professionals. Acting is actually a craft. You should hire people who know how to do it. So is cinematography, incidentally. <laughs> anyway, there was a pause on the phone and a chuckle in which he said to me, Barbara, you don't understand. All of us are praying to St. Therese for this movie. We're saying a novena. It's gonna, she's incredibly powerful, and it's going to be amazing. To which I responded, St. Therese is talking to you now. <laughs> Stop! It was a disaster. It was a disaster, except I think you can find it in the Ignatius Press catalog. Here we go. Because in the end, what we want is stories of saints. They can be tacky and banal and easy and badly acted and badly written, but if it's a story of a saint, we're there. Um, I, I was pitching a movie called The Severe Mercy at Sony Pictures. They're the people who did, um, I didn't want to go there, but they were, they were the ones that distributed Fireproof and, um, and what was that other movie? Facing the Giants, and they made you know, tens of millions of dollars. So we had them, we sent over the book because we had the rights to it. Have any of you heard of A Severe Mercy? Okay, it's a lovely story. And you know what? You all should know it. I read it in college, and it was the book that made me say I want to go to Hollywood because I want to see this turned into a movie. 
Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, the love story of Sheldon Vonnegut, who becomes a Catholic. Anyway, all right, so this is a lovely book. It's a lovely novel. Um, and I remember the executive at Sony listening to it, and he said, well, you know, we read, we had people cover the book, and you're right, it's a beautiful story. And this guy's Jewish. And he said, you know, Barbara, you and I know this audience. They don't need stuff like this. We, we don't need to give them stuff like this. We can get them for a lot cheaper. Isn't that lovely? Aren't you proud of that? All they need to do to win you is say a Catholic saint. And you will cover all of its artistic errors and buy out theaters because it's an opportunity for evangelization to show Hollywood. And you know what we end up showing Hollywood? That the Holy Spirit, in fact, has very bad taste. <laughs> OK, um, so that's the, second, the, oh, so the third one here, this cheapness thing. That's my banner in my church thing, right? We've suffered through the banner phase, which I think can largely be accounted to the, we need something on the wall that doesn't cost that much. There's a church in, in Orem, let's see, uh, Orange County, the Mission San Juan Capistrano. A couple years ago, Father Art, don't you love that, the new pastor decided he was going to do something for the mission that would be a gift to the future. And they commissioned a family in Madrid of, of artists to make, it's like a four-story gold edifice behind the main altar. And it has the, the four saints, uh, St. Saint Francis and uh, St. Joseph. It has Our Lady of Guadalupe in the middle. It's, it's astounding the way it's the, the, way the, the sparrows carved and the symbols of the Eucharist. People come in just to stare because it's 24 karat gold or something. It's still like, it's the way everything in Europe would have looked 700 years ago before all the candles burned, right? And so when you walk in, it's just this, you can see it from the back door. You open it and it's just blazing gold. People come in and just sit and stare. So all the people were so happy they went to Father, here, take our money, get more. So he said, we'll do the tabernacle. Oh, we'll do the altar. We'll do the pulpit. So when priests tell me we can't afford good art, I say, you can't afford not to have good art. If you have beautiful music, beautiful oratory, beautiful liturgical environment, the people will be so fed that, that they will be happy. First of all, they'll go out and do all kinds of amazing things in the world because they'll be, they'll be full up of gratitude and awe. But then they'll say, do more, thank you. I mean. There's a reason the churches in the Middle Ages look like they do. I think they were just guessing at trying to get something right. Let's try Chart. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so this is why I think we do badly. And, and, um, and really, I think this comes very close to home. It, it, it's um, three errors, heresies of, of beauty right now in the church. Okay, whoops, sorry, wrong way, here we go. Okay, now I wanna say a word about apprehending beauty and then I have to stop because I'm getting there, aren't I? Yeah, and I know, he, I was told you all have papers and things to do. See, I figured it's the end of the school year, that's why they brought the idiot from Hollywood in, you know, you guys are done with all the serious stuff. So anyway, I thought I was just supposed to be the entertainment, I didn't know you were still doing work. But um, anyway, uh, I wanna say a couple words and then um, we'll wrap it up. Um, now, to even apprehend the beautiful, this goes back to the I like it, right? I say Bella is not that beautiful a movie. Well, I like it. Now, um, in order to apprehend the beautiful, a person needs sensitivity, which means somewhat free of prejudice and fear. It requires your senses to be sensitive, not glutted. Um, I don't know that you can hear how beautiful the Ave Verum is, when it's beautifully done, if your whole day is loud music, you know, iPod raging every time you sit down, where you have no silence at all. I think that that kind of gluts our senses, and I think that's part of what they're talking about. 
you know, you, you can't see a beautiful painting if you're blind. And there's things that we can do to obscure our sight. There's things that we can do to obscure our inner sensitivity. You know, we can sin. Sin makes you crazy. It makes you unable to see what's there. Um, we also need intelligence. That means that you have to know what you're talking about when it comes to art. So when people say to you, that's a good story, or people say to me all the time, I read this great book, you know, it's a new, you know, a new Catholic book. People are always sending me the, need, the best new Catholic book or Christian book. I cannot stand Christian or Catholic as a, as a metaphor that way or an adjective. Is, is Crime and Punishment a Catholic book? Is Up an uncatholic movie? Why, when did we start this? Let's all glory in the subculture. We're supposed to be yeast in the lump. Right? We're supposed to stay in the cynical, get the sacraments, get the scriptures, get Jesus, get pumped up, and then go into the lump and die. That's what yeast does. It dies. And while it's dying, the lump starts to go, blah, 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 blah. And you know, there's another thing about yeast. My mother used to make bread. I'm sure some of yours did too. What has to happen before the yeast dies? That's you guys getting pounded. And then you know what happens? I remember after mom would pound the heck out of the lump, she would put it in a corner and cover it with a towel and leave it in the dark. Hmm? It's like, the yeast doesn't just die, it suffers. <laughs> okay, um, so intelligence, knowing what we're talking about. If we're, if we're talking about different art forms, knowing what their excellence is, knowing how, um, you know, the elements of the parts of them, being able to say intelligently, you know, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about movies in one more second here, but um, I think most of the time we just don't know what we're talking about when we engage the world. And one of the things we hear in Hollywood all the time from people of faith is, we don't go to the movies, we don't watch television, it's all garbage. And they, we sound like idiots. Excuse me, you saw Up? Oh, well, except that. Everything but not Pixar. Pixar's not garbage, but everything else is. Really? Have you seen what not to wear? Come on, Iron Chef America. Um, you know, the truth is there's beautiful work. A movie like uh, The Lives of Others won 2006, the uh, best foreign film. Uh, you, you know it all so well that I don't even want to insult you. The greatest cinematic takedown of atheistic communism ever done. So good that Hollywood gives it the Oscar, even though it completely spits in their face. But they're artists first, more than they're leftists. And they have to worship at the beauty there. But I mean, that year, I was like, what, what are we doing? What are we raving about? The lives of others, we should be like, that's the one we should be buying out theaters for, except that I don't believe in that. But if I did, I would say that one. I think if a movie's good, it should sell itself. I don't think it needs cute little, we're gonna fool Hollywood campaigns. <laughs> if you could fool Hollywood by buying out theaters, don't you think Hollywood would do it? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. All right, um, the last one, uh, to apprehend beauty is you need imagination. I love this one. This is from Etienne Gilson. I said Gilson earlier, and one of the professors corrected me. So, um, but uh, you know, what he means is it takes imagination for you to experience when you encounter something beautiful, then your history combines with it. And the, together, your imagination combining with this living, breathing radiance, which is Christ in the beautiful, speaks something personal to you. This is why two people can look at the same painting or stand, you know, stand by the seashore. And two people can look at the same sunset and say, one of them will go, I have to ask her to marry me. And the other one will go, I need to go to confession. 
The same sunset combining with two different people brings a new message. Um, so these are the things you need to, uh, to even see the beautiful. And I think that, that uh, the, the one that's that stops us a lot is this prejudice and fear thing. Uh, and I'm talking about on the right, my people, us. We have a thing that if it's new, it must be bad. If it came from Hollywood, it must be bad. If pagans made it, it must be bad. If it was made by Catholics, it must be good. You know, this has nothing to do with the beautiful. Um, so just to push this point, I'm gonna just do this because it was such a great slide and I get a good laugh out of it, but just kind of beating it with a stick. But you can adamantly insist to me that this is the greatest dancing ever seen on the earth. And this would be a combination of ignorance, sensitivity, and imagination, I imagine. Huh? But I feel all the time that people are doing this to me with movies and books. This is the greatest book ever. And I'm imagining this slide. Because the truth is, if you adamantly think this is the greatest dancing that has ever been done, you would be wrong. You would be wrong. And this is before Dancing with the Stars. Okay. Um, okay. Um, you know what? We're not going to get here. I think I'm going to wrap it up there. I was going to go into... Um, yeah, I know. You guys are great. But yeah, sorry I'm here all week. Not really. Uh, um, yeah, you know, I was going to say... Oh, let me just say this. We'll end with this. Why we love the movies and why um, I'm not going to be able to redeem them all tonight. Have me back next year and I'll redeem the movies for you, right? But, um, you know, why do we love the movies so much? And why, when I hear people say it's all garbage, does that make me want to hurl? The movies are the coalescing, the, co the coalesced, the, the combination. I'm a screenwriter, how bad is that? Right? A movie is a combination of the four classical art forms. So, you know, think about in times past, uh, I was reading an article about Emily Dickinson not long ago where the, there was a woman who was a singer in the 19th century. She was called the Swedish Lark. And she came from Europe and she toured the United States in like 1850. And people in Emily Dickinson's town, she came to Boston and they got in the car from Amherst and they drove all night to go and hear her sing. And then they drove back. So it was a two day thing where the whole family went because they didn't have recorded music. But they knew we can't miss this. So the power of the music, you know, people with money would paint on their walls because of the power of composition. Come see my mosaic, come see my window, come see my, my painting, my portrait. Why do people have their portraits done? Because it's powerful to, to look at an image, to see an artist do this thing. Hmm? Story, literature, this goes back to the, you know, the earliest times. We all want to hear a story. Always, we're tuned into it. And, and so the movies have that. And they have theater, performance. Aristotle says, you know, dramatic uh, performances are, are impelled by this instinct for imitation. We want to see other people sin. <laughs> we do. Because we want to say, as he says, I don't want to do that, maybe, but I want to see how it works out. <laughs> I'm about to cheat on my wife, but you know what? I'm going to read, I'm going to watch Anna Karenina first, and I'll get back to you. <laughs> you know, the, the, there seems to me the poetics is saying if we, can, if we can live through the choices of these characters and stories, we don't have to make their mistakes. So um, that's why movies have power, because they, they're not only not an art form, but they're four. That's why they're addictive for us. That's why the art form of our time. And so I just want to say to you, should it not be that you are the ones casting the shadows on the walls? Or do you want to grow up in a world where the pagans are doing it? Only should you not be one of the people 
out of compassion, talking to the people of your time, out of creativity. I know you have the talent. What's keeping you back? Fear, laziness, masquerading is prudence. Prudence is so convenient. I don't know if it would be wise. You're lazy. So we created Act One to be a bridge, so you wouldn't be alone. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. And I would say, if you're not the one that should become a teacher to your generation, pray that some of your friends are. Offer your backs to them. Give them some of your money to make their short film. You know, either praise or create. Uh, and that's what I would ask you to, um, to make your, your thing. You know what? The worst they can do is martyr us. And then we can say, is that all you got? But most of us are going to die in small rooms filled with other Catholics who stick a knife between our shoulder blades because they don't like the particular nuance of, of theology that we're, we just made. I would so rather be martyred by a pagan. So um, that's what I would ask you tonight. Uh, please uh, pray for our work in Hollywood, pray for artists, and, um, and pray for the church that we get this together because it was a very bad idea that the church not be with the arts in the 20th century. And I'll give you a little preview. Euthanasia is coming. I know because I watch television. You know that um, the movie by uh, You Don't Know Jack. How many of you saw You Don't Know Jack? Oh, look around. Okay, everybody look around. You Don't Know Jack. Anybody? One person. You Don't Know Jack was nominated for 11 Emmys. It won two. Best Actor, Best Screenplay. It won the Golden Globe. It won the Critics' Choice Award. It won SAG. It was a movie saying Jack Kevorkian is actually a persnickety, crotchety old hero. So get this, guys. The other side is winning Emmys for their euthanasia movies, and we don't even know. Not only don't we have any in the works, we're not even aware that House has had four euthanasia episodes, as had Private Practice and ER long ago, and Law and Order. And you better believe that since Terry Schiavo, every primetime show is banging this drum. And what is our response? This generation will have to atone for its failure to use the social communication media to promote the gospel of life. So I throw that out to you. Write me a movie about, uh, about why grandma shouldn't be done away with. Hmm? God bless you. Thank you very much.